starting. All right. Welcome, if anyone's out there. If not, you can watch it on the archives. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, pause. Thank you. Grateful for all things. And we're going to enter into more of the book of Revelation. Pray your spirit will guide us uh, to incorporate the important things into this revelation, into our minds and lives, discard things that are not true that I might say or, or uh, infer, and just uh, seek to understand you by the Spirit and your written word. Uh, we pray that you will help those who are struggling with faith and struggling in life, people who are having difficulty with love, and uh, we just pray that you will help uh, Kathy and Wendy and Delaney as they try to fix our technological issues, that you'll step in there and help them. In the meantime, let's uh, consider the word of God set to music in, uh, in spirit. We love you and seek you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Okay. Yep. All right, you guys. Uh, we wrapped up talking about the locusts coming out of the abyss and their description. We also talked about their king, who's called Apollyon, in the Greek last week, talking about how uh, Apollinaris and that army of the 15th Regiment from Rome came in to destroy Jerusalem how uh, that was led by Titus, and how it was called Apollinaris, and how this is, in all probability, Apollyon was their king, and uh, that's described here in Revelation. Deeper into the fifth trumpet, we will now go. We remember that earlier uh, in our study, an angel uh, or an eagle, depends on your translation of the Bible, was crying, whoa, 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 Let's continue at verse 12 of chapter 9. John now says, the first woe is past. Two other woes are yet to come. So let's cover the woes just for a minute, kind of as an aside. Woe, of course, you know, is a term in scripture that means to suffer anguish, tribulation, affliction. The three woes of Revelation are the final judgment 
whoa, 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 that God is putting upon the evil, evil inhabitants of the land in order to spur them to repentance, to cause them to change their mind about where they were prior to the end. Uh, since being exposed to Facebook uh, a few months ago, I've had the misfortune of reading ideas about God pouring these woes out upon us today in preparation for his imminent coming, as, as we mentioned this morning, some are saying it's September 23rd. And admittedly, we have had some woes on the earth. We have had afflictions of floods and, and earthquakes and rumors of wars. And, and this world is a, wor a world of woes, though. And so we always are having these going on and have constantly lived kind of under the barrage of catastrophe, even with health and and family situations and life. It's a difficult veil of tears. And so we could, many people read these as signs of the end right now. Here in Revelation, there are specific woes that are being pronounced upon Judea. And these are specific to the wrapping up of that age. So remember, God's judgments during this tribulation are pictured as seven seals, which are opened one at a time. When we get to the seventh seal, so we have the seals opened, opened, opened to the seventh. When we open the seventh seal, that reveals the trumpet judgments, seven trumpet judgments. And in Revelation 8:13, the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets are called the three woes. So the three woes are the fifth, sixth, and seventh trumpets in Revelation. He's pouring the woes out. And again, the first woe is the fifth uh, trumpet. The second woe is the sixth trumpet. And the final woe is the seventh trumpet. And it involves something like locusts that have an ability to sting like a scorpion in Revelation 9.3. And we've also read that these creatures are permitted to harm only those who do not have the seal of God in their forehead. And we talked, that's Revelation 9.4. We talked about all that was about in the past weeks. And then we've also read that those bearing God's seal are 144,000. That's 12, 12 tribes times 12,000 gives us the 144,000. That's in uh, Revelation chapter 7, verses 2 and thre uh, 3 and 4. And we've already covered that. And, and, and it also could refer to all believers of all time. That's Ephesians 4.30. This is just kind of covering where we've been. And then we talk about these demonic locusts with stings in their tails and are allowed to torment believers for five months. That's Revelation 9.5 with their painful stings. And that Revelation 9.6 says, though those who are stung will plead for death, they, it will not be given them. And we described how this in all probability, looking at the historical record, talked about on the day of Passover that uh, in ancient Israel, that is the beginning of the five months, that in the skies we have the astrological signs of all the beasts that are named here, the locusts, and the, not the locusts, but the scorpion and, and the scales, and all this stuff is coming about, and we covered most of this last week. All right. The second woe is revealed after the sixth trumpet judgment. And this woe begins... When a voice commands in Revelation 9:14, it says, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So this is the second woe. After the second woe passes, if we jumped out to Revelation chapter 11, verse 14, there, there comes a division in the book with an announcement from heaven, and that says at verse 15 of chapter 11, listen to this announcement from heaven, you ready? The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. That's what will come out in chapter 11. When we get to that, we'll discover it. But there's an announcement made. The kingdom is now the kingdom of our Lord, signifying it's been fulfilled, it's done, it's wrapped up. The kingdom is his. So that we'll discuss about it when we get there. So the third woe is revealed after the seventh trumpet judgment. And this woe is parallel to the trumpet that sounds in Joel chapter 2 and signals the consummation of God's plan. 
The third woe marks the finishing of God's judgment on sin. It occupies the book of Revelation through the 19th chapter. When Christ's kingdom is established spiritually upon the earth. It's a new Jerusalem. The old Jerusalem is brick and mortar, dusty, roads, donkeys. The new Jerusalem is a spiritual kingdom where nothing can be shaken. And we're going to read all about that as we get into these later chapters. So incorporated with this third and final woe are the seven bowls of God's wrath, which are described in chapter 16. When we get to it, we'll talk about it. And the series of judgments are the greatest horrors the citizens of earth have ever seen. Jesus said, if those days had not been cut short, nobody would survive. That's in Matthew 24, 22. So there's kind of an update background. Look at the three woes as they've come up and are mentioned here in, uh, in chapter 9. So let's read our, chapter, our verses for today, and that's verses 13 through 17. And the sixth angel sounded his trumpet... So here we go, sixth trumpet. And I heard a voice coming from the horns of the golden altar that is before God. And it said to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, quote, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. Not the great river Mississippi. Not the great, it's the great river Euphrates. And the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind is how the King James reads it. The number of the mounted troops, get this one, was 200 million. That's King James. I heard their number, John adds. You're gonna do some math in a minute. It's gonna be interesting. The horses and riders I saw in my vision looked like this. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions. Out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. Now again, we meet with people who read these things literally. They are expecting those locust men, creature beasts to walk about and sting people. They're expecting riders that have breastplates of fire of these colors horses with the heads of lions to be doing their thing. This is the literalist approach to reading scripture. It has to be this way. We're gonna see if there's a way to understand it through the historical approach and through uh, the history that have been been provided to us by Tacitus and, and Josephus and other people who are recording what was going on. Thus far, I'm convinced that our approach to the book of Revelation holds, really holds water. And, and we're getting a lot. We've had some great, it gets a little bit blurry today. It's not as concise, but nevertheless, we're still holding water. So in Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 through 12, John sees a vision of an army from the abyss and its earthly reflection in the Roman legions is how we've taught this. These are the Roman armies coming in. In the remainder of this chapter, John describes the effect of the sounding of the next trumpet, which is the sixth trumpet. And the sixth trumpet, John sees another army. This army are auxiliary uh, cohorts that are reinforcing Titus's Roman legions. So there are some auxiliary groups that are coming in and helping to fortify the, uh, the 15th Legion Apollinaris that Titus is leading in to destroy Jerusalem during that five-month siege that we talked about last week. Now, recall, as stated above, that people on earth are sometimes called angels. I'll give you the, some references. Second Chronicles 36, Haggai 1.13, Malachi 3.1. In all those places and many more in the New Testament, People on earth are sometimes called angelos, and so we have a crossover. Uh, People can be called, humans can be called angels. And if it is true that Titus is an earthly counterpart to the angels of the abyss, in, in verse 11, then it follows that these four angels that bound the Euphrates may have human counterparts. And this is where Revelation starts to get pretty heavy. But this would certainly not be the first time that angels and humans are, are addressed as separate beings 
but are addressed together. There, there's like an angel in heaven and there's a counterpart on earth. And that's, I think, what we're starting to see here when it's talking about uh, these human reflections of these four angels are the four kings that aided Titus during his campaign against Jerusalem. How did they aid Titus? These four kings, according to the historical record, supplied Titus with auxiliary troops during the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD. These four kings, or angels, their counterpart, Antiochus, Agrippa II, Sohemus, and Malchus. That's their four names. So we have in heaven a voice coming in saying, release, release, what's, what, I'll give you the direct quote. It says, uh, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. And what that is, is a voice from heaven telling these four kings to release their ancillary, these, uh, these uh, subsidizing armies to come in and help Titus as he goes in to uh, attack Jerusalem. And again, their names in history are Antiochus, Agrippa II, Sohemus, and Malchus. So at the beginning of the siege of Jerusalem, there were four Roman legions and four auxiliary units that were uh, sent to help take over that area. According to Josephus, these four auxiliary units were collectively furnished by four Roman client kings, you might call them, that are mentioned uh, in history as Antiochus, Agrippa, Sohemus, and Malchus. Um, These four Roman client kings, I call them client kings, some Jews reinforced our, uh, Titus's Roman legions and are earthly representatives, I would suggest, of the four angels. So in heaven, when it says release the four angels, what it's saying is release these four men and their troops that are going to go in and help fortify Titus as he d- goes in to invade Jerusalem. Two out of these four units were drawn directly from the uh, Euphrates just to let you know. Historically, two of those four, so when it says release the four angels and the Euphrates, two of them we know did come from that area. And upon the release of these four messengers, four angels, thousands of auxiliary troops, specifically those under the authority of Antiochus and Sohemus, which were drawn from the Euphrates, those are the two that came from that area, uh, reinforced Titus's Roman legions stationed at Caesarea near Mount Megiddo, fulfilling verses 14 through 16. From there, Titus' coalition of Roman legions and auxiliary troops closed in on Jerusalem with the intent to kill the Jewish rebels that were seeking refuge within the walls of the city. And the sixth trumpet is a call to mobilize these allied units stationed at the Euphrates coming from heaven, okay, boo, 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 release those auxiliary troops is, is what the call might be. Now, in the revised versions of the Bible, read verse 15. It says, and the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year to slay the third part of mankind, it says. A better way to say it would be to slay the third part of men. If you say men instead of mankind, because that the Greek supports men more than mankind, then what we're talking about is a group of men rather than all the human race. Futurists today see it as the whole human race and a third of the human race is gonna be wiped out. I don't see it that way. I see not as a worldwide cataclysm, but of their world falling apart. Then we come to the number of the mounted troops was 200 million, I heard their number. 200 million mounted troops. So now I want you to put your thinking caps on. Put on your, your, your brains for just reasonable thinking here, okay? If you're a biblical literalist, if you claim the King James only teaches us the truth exactly how it's written and what is written is exactly right, this is the King James definition, and we have to deal with the number 200 million, and we have to deal with them being all mounted troops. In and itself, we can say that 
there's hyperbole here, this is representational, or it's a mistranslation. It's gonna be one of those, one of those uh, or another. It is highly, highly unlikely that this is literal unless we are talking about earthly armies and heavenly armies combined and heavenly armies being on horseback. If that's the case, then we can say that's what it's talking about literally. But if we're talking about literally men mounted on horseback, the number of 200 million, you're talking about, it's just fantasy. That just, it's just not gonna be. I mean, even in the world today, they say that the best guesstimates say there's 58 million horses on earth today. So we're talking about 200 million horses. <laughs> it's just, come on. And then if you think about that, 200 million horses, how are they fed? Where does their waste go? Where does their water come from? And how do they effectively fight on horseback in this world? 200 million horses, it's just, it just, I mean, it just doesn't work. Something's wrong. So let's start with the number 200 million as representing just soldiers. Forget the horses. An army of 200 million would never describe an army surrounding Jerusalem. 20,000 were, were, were more like it. 200 million, it's a number that it just, forget it. So most translational problems in the Bible come with dates and numbers. And of course, the original manuscripts, word perfect, but in translation, the, the, those jots and tittles are so small and difficult that it's so easy to mess them up, and I don't think this is an exception. But the revised translations that you might have, the NIV, the ESV, any of those, all assign this number as 200 million. And that's the, that's the, 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 the later manuscripts. But if you look at a word-for-word -word interlinear translation of the King James, literally Greek word for Greek word, this would read, and the number of armies of the cavalry was twice 10,000 Ten thousands. That's. Does anybody's in this room Bibles read that? Does your Bible read that? Oh, you have the. Is that the ESV? ESV actually says, "Wow, that's real interesting." And does anybody, if you have your Bibles with you, does it happen to talk about the two hundred million there instead of twice ten thousand? All right. So right there, we have a big difference in interpretation between the ESV and and your uh, version in the back. So we have to say, well, what's, what's the reality of this, you know? The word-for-word word translation in Psalm 68, 17 says, the Lord of angels, thousands, 20,000 of God are the chariots in holiness. That phrase is the same phrase that is used here in Revelation. The New King James Version also translates that verse in Psalm 68, 17 the same way. The chariots of God are 20,000, even thousands of thousands. Young's literal translation, which I know, Steve, you have in your lap, also suggests that the number of soldiers might be more accurately, accurately translated as 20,000 because it translates this passage and the number of the forces of the horsemen is two myriads of myriads. And in Greek antiquity, a myriad is 10,000. So two myriads of myriads is 20,000. And that brings some reasonability to the number. And it also helps us and equips us to talking with King James literalists who say, no, 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 this is word perfect, epistemis verba. We, this is, we can just take it exactly as it is to say, okay, let's just turn to Revelation chapter nine. Do you believe that we're talking about 200 million on horseback or just even 200 million soldiers? Now let's talk about the horses that are mounted. Josephus says that Antiochus, Agrippa, Sohemus, and Malchus each furnished 1,000 horsemen. Each furnished 1,000. Therefore, out of the 20,000 auxiliary troops, if the ESV and the Young's literal is correct, then we're talking about 20,000 auxiliary troops, 4,000 cavalry, cavalry. Uh, so that's, that's another way to see it. 
one final problem. Revelation seems to suggest that if it's even 20,000, that they were all horsemen. That's the last problem to deal with. That even if we agree that it was 20,000, does yours read that way, Steve? That they were all horsemen? I'm sorry for you guys at home. I just wanted to ask this. All horsemen, yeah. So now suddenly we're talking about a huge number of horsemen. You know, there's in, the, in that battle at Jerusalem. Uh, for those of you who are saying, well, this proves it doesn't, isn't speaking about Jerusalem. It's talking about a world war that's coming on September 23rd of this year or whenever, right? But when you think about that, how many times in our day are, are, are wars fought with horsemen? So that throws that one right out the, out the window. Let's just get rid of that one. Revelation is talking about horsemen coming in to help be an auxiliary troop. Are we really going to have horsemen riding through uh, here in this last final days, 2017, as the warriors, like it's Braveheart or something? So we, that, that is not what it's talking about. So we can, I think we can just say we aren't talking about this day. We are talking about that day. How do we then justify 20,000 horsemen? Uh, as cited before, the word-for-word interlinear translation from Greek to English, Revelation literally leads, and the number of armies of the cavalry was twice 10,000, 10,000. Though some Bible translations explicitly indicate that this is 10, twice 10,000, 10,000 are horsemen, the majority... English Bible translations translate Revelation 9.16, similar to the interlinear, and the number of the armies of the cavalry, of the cavalry. So it isn't talking about the whole group. It seems like it is, but it isn't. It's talking about uh, the 20,000 Roman auxiliaries who supplemented Titus regions during the siege of Rome were about 20% horsemen. And then all we got to do is take Josephus' historical record, who says those four kings, two of them from the Euphrates, sent a thousand horsemen each to supplement Titus and his armies going into Jerusalem. And we have that passage making some, some real sense, regardless of what the translations have, have to say. So tw I just think 20,000 horsemen is a grossly inflated figure for any besieging force in ancient times. And horses just weren't that useful. Uh, horses wouldn't, horsemen wouldn't be that useful in attacking a walled city. And so therefore, it just doesn't seem like that uh, fits. All right. The final thing to consider with that is that uh, John is talking about, like we said, horsemen on the earth and heavenly forces of angels who are riding on horseback. We know earlier in our study of Revelation that the, in the clouds, as was reported, uh, that there were seen chariots and horses riding through the clouds, that maybe it's a combination of the two, all going in to help destroy Jerusalem. And if that is the case, and I'm not saying it's not, then we can say that passage, verse 16, is correct. It's literal. I just wanted to cover that. Verse 17, and the horses and riders he's talking about now, I saw in my vision, looked like this, colon. Their breastplates were fiery red, dark blue, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. Uh, we have some evidence here that's really sound, and I forgot to take my photocopy, or not my, my printed digital copy, of evidence that comes from antiquity, and I'll, I'll just have to explain it. In verse 17, the cavalry of red hyacinth and yellow sulfur breastplates, these colors hint at the fire, smoke, and sulfur coming up out of that abyss. And they may also foreshadow the smoke and the fire and the sulfur that will soon engulf Jerusalem when it was burned by the Romans as it falls in 70 AD. Earlier in verse 9, John reveals the fact that these soldiers, these locusts, were wearing breastplates of iron. And we drew that locust up on the board last week and how we showed how it had where the breastplate would be of them. Uh, if we go... Right next door, I don't know if you've seen, these guys are welders over here, and they weld everything. 
And if you go over there and you talk to them about welding, they will tell you that when you are welding and when you are putting iron together with heat and fire, you get the colors that are described here in uh, Revelation of dark blue, red, even yellows will come out in heated, welded uh, uh, iron. And so they're different colored crystals. As indicated in this verse, using ancient chemical techniques, iron can be manipulated and could be manipulated, according to what I was able to find, to sulfur yellow, red ochre, Prussian blue, colors of fire, smoke, etc. Then we read, moving on, verse 17, the horses and rider I saw in my vision looked like this, the breastplates were fiery, dark blue, red, and yellow as sulfur. The heads of the horses resembled the heads of lions. Now that sounds very apocalyptic and very creature-like, and of course literalists will say that's what we're looking for, horses with the heads of lions, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. This is one of the most compelling pieces of evidence that we have that it's taking place at a different time and a different age because there are helmets that, the hor- that were put and made for the horses of the Roman armies where they would put the head of a lion on the face of the, and that's the picture I had to show you, but it had the, the uh, molten face head of a lion that they would put over and the horse could see through its eyes, but its head was protected from arrows and from uh, swords and from being hit. You kill the, the horse, the rider's gonna go down. So they put these helmets on it and that is a perfect tie-in to what was happening then. Uh, so that's the reason for that compelling piece of evidence. Then the final line of verse 17, we see a tie-in to the likeness. Last week we talked about the mythical hydra and which again is seen in the cosmos on the first day of the, of the beginning of the five months of the siege of Jerusalem. This tie-in to that comes in, and out of their mouths came fire, smoke, and sulfur. Now, we read in Job 41 of Leviathan, and Leviathan breathing out fire. And John ties the locus of this army to the Leviathan, a mythical sea monster which is used in scripture to symbolize an invading oppressive empire. And so John again is appealing to what that picture is in Job 41.9 when he, it says there, firebrands stream from Leviathan's mouth. And so that drawing from the Old Testament, we have John tapping into this imagery to describe this monster that's coming in to invade Jerusalem. Uh, These locust soldiers collectively seem to embody the mighty Leviathan, Rome, and it it includes launching firebrands from its mouth out into the city. Now, Josephus does not specifically say that at the attack of Jerusalem that Rome launched firebrands into Jerusalem, but he does say that when when they invaded Jadapada, which is Galilee, that they did launch firebrands then. And so we figure if they were doing that sort of warfare with Galilee, in all probability, though he doesn't mention it in Jerusalem, they may have done it there as well. So Leviathan is called to mind in this verse. And like the other constellations that are mentioned and we covered two weeks ago, this was visible, this hydra with the fire-breathing hydra was visible in the sky on the night that the five-month siege took place. Um, jumping out a bit, fire, smoke, sulfur that came out of the mouth of this hydra of the locusts in verse 17 and 18 um, could also refer to fire coming down from heaven. And we, you remember that when we talked about the siege, how that they would shoot the fire and then it would fall down, it would fall down from heaven. So that uh, imagery is not that it's lightning and literal fire coming down from heaven and consuming um, uh, people like it did in the Old Testament, but it's actually the Roman fire shooting the firebrands and it seems to be coming down as if from heaven. Um, All right, describing the Babylonians, Joel 2.3 says this, just to let you know. Before them, fire devours. Behind them, a flame blazes. Before them, the land is like a garden of Eden. Behind them, a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. So again, we appeal to imagery in the Old Testament of fire and its destructive 
purposes upon invasion and the parallel being the same here at Jerusalem. Verse 18, a third of mankind was killed by the three plagues of fire, smoke, and sulfur that came out of their mouths. Again, to a futurist, we're looking for one-third of the Earth's population to die, perhaps as little as five days from now. According to Josephus' estimates, this is interesting, there were three million people trapped in Jerusalem city walls. Remember, it was during the time of the Passover. Pilgrims have come in, the attack occurs, the rebels within Jerusalem burn up all their food because they think it's going to cause the people in the city to help them fight. It doesn't do that. They begin to starve. They begin to eat their own shoe leather and each other. And it's a horrible scene. And they wish that they would die for the five months while the Roman army stays outside the city walls and lets them do their thing and goes out and gets the rest of the area and scorches the earth. Josephus says there were three million trapped in the city because of the high holidays, and he says that 1,100,000 were killed. That's a third of the number of men that were killed at that time. It's historical. It's right there. That's, a, that's almost an exact number. 1,100,000 killed, and here in Revelation, John is telling the seven churches at uh, that God has told him through Jesus, this is what it's going to look like. A third of the people are going to get wiped out. Now, what happened to the other uh, uh, two million that were left? They were dispersed. They were sold into slavery. Who knows what would have happened to them, but they were completely dispersed at what the Jews refer to as the diaspora. Verse 19, and the power of the horses was in their mouths and in their tails, and their tails were like snakes having heads which they inflict injury. I have to admit this passage is a lot more uh, fanciful and a lot more, uh, it seems like, wow, we're really talking about a creature here. We're talking about something that's very difficult here. In this description, the likeness of a creature we discovered that was in the skies last week is shown here in Revelation Ophiuchus. Ophiuchus is the creature. He's known as the serpent. And here, Ophiuchus, who was shown in the skies, is being represented here, represented by the words of John. Remember on the first day of the seas that John could have looked up into the night sky and seen all of these creatures, constellations, present. Also remember that the Roman armies, they had on their uh, shields the very constellation that was in the sky when they were formed. And so we have a connection between the Roman army and these constellations. So lying directly above Scorpio, the stinging one, which was part of the description, these constellations would have been visible the Passover night at the start of Titus's five-month siege. In verse 10, the tails of the, were, of the horses were said to be like scorpions. In verse 19, it's compared to that of a snake. It's hard to make a direct meaning here. I'd like to, but you can't. It's just, this is the imagery. And we could come up with all sorts of configurations and try to switch it up to make it make sense. But all I know is the imagery is the power is in their tails. And of course, that has been uh, thought of as the swords that are dangling on the Roman soldier's legs, as the ho- they're riding on the horse, you can see their sword. The sting is in that as they take that sword out and use it. What about the remainder that were not killed? I just mentioned them. Verse 20, the rest of mankind, again in the Greek, the rest of men that were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. Now, remember that line there, did not repent of the work of their hands, okay? They did not stop worshiping demons and idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So we have some sin 
that is directly tied to the remainder that weren't killed, of the one-third that were killed. And those sins, murder, magic arts, sexual morality, and thefts, are directly tied to that they didn't repent to the work of their hands. So they're guilty of idolatry, of creating idols, it seems, from their hands. They didn't stop worshiping those demons, idols of gold, silver, bronze, stone, and wood, idols that cannot see in here. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So three million people are in Jerusalem. 1,100,000 of them are killed, and the remainder don't change a bit because of this. They continue to worship. Really, it's just idolatry. That's what we're talking about. Now, if you've been with us at Milk uh, over the past year or two, we've been talking about how present idolatry has been in the outer regions where Paul has been visiting, and how when you go out, you're going to find that they're worshiping at the temples of Artemis, and that they are involved in their pagan worship was the creation of little idols made of silver and gold, and that part and parcel of worshiping those idols was sexual uh, relations with temple prostitutes and sexual deviancies, and, and here we're talking about murders, and we're talking about different things that they're being accused of. They haven't put that stuff away. A major fear among the church, one that came to fruition despite apostolic warnings, was that the idolatry of the pagan nations would continue among the people of God. We know that the words of Jesus to the seven churches, when he went to them specifically and he said, Thyatira, Sardis, this you're doing well, but this I have against you, two or three times he said, you're still involved with idolatry. You're still involved with the stuff that goes along with worshiping these idols. And I'm not pleased with you, which is always magic and sexual depredations, which go hand in hand with their idolatrous practices. So in verses 20 and 21, it seems to speak directly to the heart of those who were not killed in the Roman siege, that were in Jerusalem, that were in all probability Jews, and yet when they found that they hadn't been killed, they still continued on with their idolatrous practices. It's really interesting that in the Midrash Lamentations, that, the, that this is the oldest of the Lamentations that was uh, created by the Jews. Uh, Simon, Rabbi Simon ben Lakish attributes the destruction of the first temple by the Babylonians and the second temple by the Romans to the worship of idols. Okay? And this is what he says. This is a quote from them. Woe to them that join house to house. You have joined the destruction of the first temple to that of the second temple. As with the first temple, Zion shall be plowed like a field. That's prophetically stated in Jeremiah 26. So with the second temple, Zion shall be plowed like a field till there be no place. And then this rabbi adds in this Lamentation Midrash, what caused the place to be destroyed? Because they left no place where idolatry was not practiced among them. So the reason that uh, this rabbi writes that the Jews were killed and put in captivity during the Babylonian era and the temple was destroyed was idolatry and we jump out to 70 AD, and the reason again, he says the second temple, was idolatry because they left no place where idolatry could not be found. Now, Rabbi Lakish goes on and he lists all the various places where the Israelites worship idols from in secret places, in their rooftops and on their mountains and their fields, uh, in the streets of Jerusalem, 70 AD. And so if you want an idea of what was going on, idolatry had just run amok. They had continued it, even when they were spared destruction in Jerusalem by the Roman army and two million remained, they continued to be idolatrous, which has been idol worship, image worship, uh, divine honor paid to some created object is a, the truest crime against God in the Old Testament. 
There's no crime more heinous to God than idolatry. And if you really study it, you'll start to discover that almost all sins are a form of idolatry. You, it, they, they really are. I mean, whatever it is you're saying, I worship this thing, whether it's a woman or money or whatever it is, your will, it's an idol before God. So idolatry is like the most heinous Old Testament crime, and the nation of Israel had a really hard time letting it go. They, uh, I think their time in, in Egypt probably gave them some shot in the arms with idolatry. I think it took God 40 years of their roaming around uh, the wilderness to try to get rid of a lot of it, and they were still making, you know, Moses goes up to the mountain, what does Aaron do? He makes a little golden god. I mean, this is the crime of humankind against God. It's idolatry. And of his own people, it didn't leave them even under tremendous persecution by the Roman armies. So in Romans chapter 1, verses 25, uh, 21 through 25, Paul describes the origin of idolatry, and he says it's men forsaking God. And when men, women forsake God, they start to sink into their own depravity and ignorance and we become corrupt in our thinking this is what romans 1 says we become corrupted in our thinking when we stop seeking him and forms of idolatry are throughout scripture and they worship trees and they worship rivers and stones and hills and nature show me someone today who stops looking to god a creator and i'll show you a group of people who will start worshiping the creation it's a natural thing. Let go of him, and you'll start to grip that. Just like Bob Dylan, you're going to serve something. We're going to worship something. We have that need. And if it's not going to be the true and living God, we will become idolaters. And so hero worship, the, the worship of the deceased, of ancestors, is prevalent in Japan. I mean, of ancestor worship. And so nature, ancestors, most of Scripture regards idolatry as having heathen origin, and it was imported into the Hebrews through contact with heathen nations. And allusion to idolatry is in the account, the very first allusion in scripture, do you remember? It's when Rachel uh, stole her father's teraphim, uh, a relic, and uh, where it says that Laman got it, quote, on the other side of the river in old time. So without the true and living God, we will worship idols. And during their long residence in Egypt, it seems that the Hebrews fell into some systems of idolatry. And from that point forward, they just really had a difficult time uh, getting it out of them. And uh, so it was through the Babylonian exile that God said, okay, I'm gonna try to get it out of you this way. I'm gonna put you in bondage. The temple's gonna be destroyed. The first and second commandments are directed against idolatry in every form. Love God with all your heart, might, mind. And uh, the Old Testament insights to the crime and punishments for idolatry are numerous and worth a look as the punishment was almost always death. When people become subject to their own abominations and their own corrupted minds, the punishment is death. Uh, in the Old Testament. And so we see that the punishment was death here among the nation of Israel in Jerusalem too. Uh, very, very interesting. Um, and just as a side note, many people have trouble when you read about the Old Testament ways of, Jeru of the Israelites marching through and God saying, go into the promised land and when you come upon the Canaanites, I want you to kill all the people, including the children, including the animals, wipe them out. Now, a couple thoughts on that, which in our day and age, that's just reprehensible. I mean, just that's not some God I can believe in. But two things. One, pull back into the eternal view, him being God and our lives being but a vapor. His working through to bring the nation of Israel through to accomplish what it did by giving us the oracles, the scripture, and his son, he was trying to keep them from any infestation of idolatry through those Canaanite practices. And you have to remember that the pagans, they would sacrifice their babies and they would sacrifice women, burning alive to their Moloch and their idols. And so God said, listen, 
Uh, we don't understand it maybe, but he says, even the children who have been infested with this, take it all out. In the eternal spectrum, it's nothing. But for what I'm trying to accomplish, this is what we're doing so that you can get through this without embracing these practices. And of course, there are many times that the children of Israel didn't do that. They kept a few things. And you could hear the lambs bleeding after they were told to go out and kill them. They didn't do it because they didn't completely get rid of those uh, temptations in their lives. So we tend to think of, oh, these, these poor Canaanites, they're peaceful, loving people. They're out creating maize paste and, and, and looking beautiful, but they were barbarous in their pagan approaches to God. And in that time, in that place, it was uh, one Bible commentator, I have a quote here, it says, a city guilty of idolatry was looked upon as a cancer in the state. It was considered to be in rebellion and treated according to the laws of war. Its inhabitants and all their cattle had to be put to death. That's how they would put it. Jehovah was the theocratic king of Israel, the head of the commonwealth, and therefore Israelite idolatry was an offense of idolatry and adultery against the state. It's, and that's why the sin of adultery between a man and a woman was con, that was a punish, death punish, that was a crime punishable by death. And so idolatry was punishable by death. So once po taking possession of lands, the Jews were commanded to destroy all traces of the existing idols, and they often did not do it. In the New Testament, the term idol is also used synonymously with the term covetousness. That when you look at something someone else has, and you covet it, you are practicing a form of idolatry because you are holding it up above the, the laws of God. So perhaps the second temple destruction was in response to the people's refusal to receive God's only son, Christ Jesus, as Lord and Savior, but instead said, we'll worship anything but him. We will, do, we will worship anything but him, and perhaps... That is what brought about the final destruction. Let's wrap it up right now with a couple bullet points on chapter nine, and we're gonna get into chapter 10 next week. These things are little insights. There's about nine of them, and they're short to what we've already discussed. First, the Roman attack on Jerusalem began on Passover and ended in the eighth day of Eulul, is what E L. UL, five months later, according to the Bible, each time heaven and earth had been destroyed, it spans the uh, course of a five-month period of time. This is interesting. The first time this happened was when? When it was earth destroyed? It was during the flood. If you do the chronology of time, we're looking at a five-month period there. The second time was during the Babylonian siege. That's Ezekiel 4, five-month period there. The third time here, Jerusalem and that world being destroyed, uh, again, a five-month period with Rome uh, waging war upon them. Interestingly, that every time the world is destroyed, by the way, Scripture talks about the world being destroyed during the time of Noah. Was the whole world destroyed? No, we're still here. What was destroyed? That world was destroyed. During the Babylonian captivity and their world was destroyed, was the whole world destroyed? No, just the world under that Babylon, Babylonian captivity in the temple and the children of Israel then. Similarly today, when God came back and his disciples said to Jesus in Matthew 24, tell us when will be the end of this age, King James writes it, end of this world, it's talking about that world when it was destroyed with Jesus coming back. So... Between four to six signs of the zodiac are visible at any moment in the night sky. Six to eight may become visible throughout the course of the night. After Nero's death, Vespasian stayed at Caesarea, the edge of the Roman province of Israel, which is known as the earth. He stayed on the earth. But there he moved to Beirut, uh, the sea in Josephus' War of the Jews. Then he departed Alexandria in Egypt, 
the sea again, according to Suetonius, Lives of the Twelve Caesars. Cassius Dio, Roman History 66, says Titus' siege began on the 14th of Nisan during Passover, according to the War of the Jews. The siege of five, ended five months later on the 8th of Yulel, as stated in the War of the Jews. All that is to say that when we've gone through and we've talked about sea and land being mentioned, those references I just gave you are speaking to that. Uh, number four, to be completely accurate, the constellation Virgo actually evolved from a combination of two ancient Babylonian female constellations, Yerua and Shala. These are just side notes. Interestingly, Caesar Titus had an adulterous affair with the firstborn princess of Israel, Bernice, during and after the Jewish war, as this is explained in detail. In a, uh, Queen Bernice is the human embodiment of Jerusalem, the whore of Babylon. The whore of Babylon had an adulterous affair with the beast, according to Revelation 17, 18. We'll get to that when we talk about it then. Two more, Sagittarius is identified today as a centaur. However, this constellation represented the god Pablasag in early cultures like the Babylonians. Like the locusts of Revelation 9, Pablasag had wings and a lion's head. The constellation of Sagittarius seems to have embodied many of the attributes of locusts throughout the history of this constellation. And finally, as you know, the name Apollo, Apollon in Greek, was often linked to the ancient Greek writings with the verb apolami or apolami, which means to destroy. We're gonna end it there. We're gonna get into Revelation chapter 10 now. That was kind of some summarizing thoughts of what we have talked about with uh, chapter nine and chapter 10 we'll get into more verse by verse next week. Questions, comments, Wendy, get walking. Anything, nothing, far side, a young man I've never seen. He, this rabbi, he was a contributor to what's known as the Midrash Lamentations. They were a group of writings about Jewish history, the first of them happening in 500 AD. So when he looked back on the history and wrote his thoughts, uh, he, that's what he said. And what was his name again? His name was, and because I've never seen you, just to let you know, these notes are open. Whoever gets first, take them. But his name is, or was, Rabbi Simeon Ben Lakish. Gotcha. Got it? Thank you. You're welcome. Anybody else? All right, let's pray. Lord, send your spirit and guide us. A lot of information, trying to make sense of it so that we can get through Revelation and, and have it have a place for us, a reasonable, logical, contextual, sound place for us. And if it's speaking to our future, let it speak. And if it's speaking to the past, let it speak. Uh, help us to clear away the things in our mind and to be free from whatever holds us bound because we know that you came to set the the captives free, and to open the doors of the prison to those who are bound, to set us free from sin and tradition, and to be free in the spirit to do your work. We pray for those who are on our list, and we pray that you will help them, and those who aren't on the list, but <coughs> maybe wish they were. We pray for Diana and her healing of her leg, as she's been in that hospital, is gonna be there another month. We pray that you, she will uh, heal and uh, be able to walk again, and get her, gets her health back and be able to be mobile. We pray for those who are struggling with other health issues and that you will encourage them and help them to know that you are uh, the great physician and you will heal. Uh, whether it's their heart or their body, we don't know, but whatever it is, Lord, make yourself be known. We pray, Lord, that you will bless uh, Jonathan's finger and uh, that you will heal that. And uh, who else? Someone else hurt their finger. Grant. Bless Grant, he cut his finger open with a lawnmower the other day or an edger, whatever it was. He'll grant and help him and Myrna. We're glad to have them back in our presence. We pray for those people out there who are watching from home, watch the archives and consider those things that you'll bless them, bring like-minded believers and strong believers into their fellowship and friendship and, and help them to pursue you hotly with uh, spirit and truth. 
So be with us till we get here next week. If it's your will, we love you and praise you and seek you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh,